Well, we finished this evening uh, the last in our series that we've been going through uh, for the month through the book of Second Peter. And if you're like me and you're always wanting to know what's next, if you look in your uh, in the insert, you hopefully received um, the handout for tonight. You'll see that in July through through July through basically Labor Day, we're going to be doing a study on the miracles of Jesus. Um, we're going to get the opportunity in our Sunday night service to hear from several different pastors on staff, some of our teachers of our TMC communities, which meet before and after our morning service. Uh, as well. So that's what will be coming up in two weeks starting in July. But tonight we finish off this book of Second Peter. Well, I made one of, uh, one of the things that I wanted to do in 2018 is I made a goal this year in my life to read more fiction. Now, I love to read. I read lots of books, but I find myself kind of sometimes getting stuck in a rut of reading the same type of thing. So I need need more fiction in my life. And what better way, I thought, to start the year through than reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. And so just a couple weeks ago, I think it was last week or the week before, I finished reading um, all through the, the seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you're like, I thought those were kids' books. They are. They are kids' books, but they're still great reads even as an adult. When you come back to them 10 or 15 later after you read them last, there's all sorts of truths that come to the top that I've missed before. And I was struck in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you know anything about him, you know the central figure throughout the series is Aslan. The lion Aslan, who, who's kind of the, the Jesus or the Christological figure throughout, the creator of Narnia. And in the last book of the, the series, is called The Last Battle. And it it's kind of centers around early on in the book, there, there's a, an ape named Shift and his donkey friend named Puzzle. And they find a lion's carcass and they dress the donkey up to look like a lion. And then Shift goes around telling everyone that Aslan is here. You see, in, in Narnia, Aslan hadn't been seen for, for a long time. And the people knew about Aslan. They heard the stories. They knew the truth about him. And they were told that someday Aslan will return, but they didn't know when. And suddenly, here is this guy saying, oh no, Aslan is here. And of course, they would always ask, can we see him? And he would say, only at night when it's very dark. And so under pitch darkness, he would briefly bring out this donkey dressed up like a lion. And the animals didn't know any better. And the people didn't know any better. And they were convinced that he indeed was Aslan. Well, the king realized what was going on and went to fight as the people's hearts were turning against true Aslan, and he was dismayed as he found this reality. That for most of the people, because they had been waiting for so long to meet Aslan, they actually had walked away and no longer were serving him. And as he called on people to serve Aslan, they said, no, we don't, we don't want to serve him. What, what good is he doing? We haven't seen him in a long time. And the last book of the, called The Last Battle is this conflict between the people who still trust in Aslan versus those who have no longer trusted him because they haven't seen him in a long time. So I think I, as I read that story, as I also was studying through the book of Second Peter with you, the, the idea came to mind that that's so true often of us in our Christian life. Because we haven't seen, we've been promised, Jesus is coming. And we're like, yeah, When? Can, can it be enough already? Can, can we know the date? Can it come soon enough? That oftentimes, because it's a long way off, and we're not sure, our hearts can be easily swayed while we wait for his return. In the book of 2 Peter, the main thrust is to, to assure his audience, Jesus is coming. His promise that he'll come again is still true, and he will follow through on it. And while we wait, this is how we live. 
And as he concludes the book tonight, at the end of chapter 3, in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the final five verses tonight. 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18. He, he re-emphasizes to them this fact, which he's flowed throughout the book, that assurance in Jesus' return leads to action while we wait. Assurance in Jesus' return to earth leads to action, to living out our faith for him while we wait for him to return. So as we look tonight at this passage, we're going to discover together three keys to diligent waiting on Jesus. If you're a believer and you're wondering, what does God have in store? Well, we wait for him to return. What does God want from me now while we wait? We're going to hopefully discover three keys together tonight. The first is here in verse 14 of chapter 3. It says this, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The first key to diligent waiting, the first key is constant effort. The first key to diligent waiting for us as believers is constant effort. And we see this in this phrase, be diligent to be found by him. Now he starts off that says, since you are waiting for these. Well, what is he referencing for these? He's referencing immediately back to the two verses that came right before. I'll read them for you. Verses 12 and 13 say this, that we're waiting for the hastening coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So that's the judgment of sin and all evil, but also positively in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is what we're waiting for. We're waiting till all is made right in the world. Jesus returns. We experience true righteousness with him. So while we wait for him, we're called this, this idea is to be diligent to be found by him. Now it's interesting, the ESV translate this to be diligent. In almost every other um, Bible, common, Bible translation, it's translated this way, make every effort. Make every effort to be found by him without spot or blemish. This is actually the fourth time in this book that Peter has used this word. He used it three times in chapter 1. First in chapter 1, verse 5. He said this, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And he continued down a list of things. A few verses later, he said, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And then 2 Peter 1, verse 15, he says this, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. See, Peter says this, he wants them to understand this, that if you're a believer waiting for God's return, we have work to do. We have a job in front of us that's going to take a lot of our effort and our time and our energy. As Christians waiting for Jesus' return, we're not passive bystanders, we're active players and what God wants to do in our world while we wait. And so what is this that, that we're making every effort for, that we're being diligent to be found? It's this, to be found by him without spot or blemish. Without spot or blemish. This is director, directory, excuse me, directly contrary to what he called the false teachers that he talked about in chapter 2. One of the descriptions of them in chapter 2, verse 13, of these false teachers was that they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. And he says this, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. So if the false teachers are blots and blemishes, the children of God should be found without 
spot or blemish. Without spot or blemish, we should be found to be wanting to be perfect. And see, if this also reminds you of other passages in Scripture of Jesus, you'd be accurate as well. Because in both in 1 Peter as well as in Hebrews, it looks to Jesus who was the one who was without blemish or spot. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Where when you sacrificed a lamb for sin, you didn't just get any lamb. You got the lamb without blemish and without spot. And that's the goal. That's what we're to be working towards as Christians. And as we work towards it, he reminds us at the end of verse 14 that we do it at peace. We are at peace. Now, this peace refers to our status before God. So what Peter is making sure to remind, work out, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish. But remember, if you're a believer, you already have peace with God. See, works for a Christian are not to achieve salvation, but they flow from our salvation. Peter is not saying make every effort to do enough good things so that when you get to heaven, Jesus says, I'm really impressed with your effort. It was an A for effort, you're in. That's not what he's saying. He's saying because you've already placed your trust in Jesus, because you have peace with God, it's our motivation to live out our lives with full effort to honor God in everything that we do. See, for the gospel to work its full work in us, we must also work faithfully. For the gospel to have its full work in our lives, we must work faithfully. It's not that our works contribute to, to our own salvation, but the, the process of sanctification, of making believers holy like Christ, starts now. See, sometimes we talk in church about how if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. And if you've grown up in the church, you heard a lot this lot when you were a kid and you sang songs. And if you're like me growing up in the church, you're like, well, that's awesome. Eternal life, that means I go to heaven when I die. Right? And if you were to ask lots of Christians what eternal life means, oh, eternal life means when I die, I go to heaven. Friends, eternal life starts the moment you place your trust in Jesus Christ. That's when your eternal life starts. Your eternal life doesn't start someday off in the future. If you're a believer, it's already started. It's here and it's now. And since we have this status, we have this peace with God, he asks for us and Peter urges us to make every effort to be diligent, to be found spotless and blameless before God. Now the Holy Spirit lives and works and is active inside each and every Christian. But oftentimes we have a misunderstanding of how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. There's kind of two unhealthy sides to this. and, And the scripture teaches that unity is found in the middle. On one side of people who who do this think it's all my effort. My sanctification, my growing in the Lord depends on me and me alone. Therefore, I am up to everything. It's all up to me. I have to work hard. I have to do all of this stuff. And it's a self-sufficient religion that I only grow closer to God based on what I do. Now, this kind of behavior can be really difficult sometimes to spot because the, the activities that they're doing are good activities. Right? It's Bible reading, it's church attendance, it's prayer, it's good activities, but the motive behind it can be a self-sufficiency that this by my own is going to win me sanctification, is going to grow me closer to God. But we make every effort relying on the Spirit. However, on the other side, you have people who are like, well, I'm just going to rely on the Holy Spirit to make me sanctified. Do I need to read my Bible? Nah, the Holy Spirit will make me sanctified. Do I need to go to church? 
Now, nah, the Holy Spirit will make me sanctified. Do I need to live a generous life and sacrifice financially so that the gospel can go? No, nah, the Holy Spirit will do whatever it wants to do, and I don't really need to do anything at all. God will do whatever he wants in my life, but I don't have to work it out at all. Neither of those sides are what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit works in us, and we work as well. The Holy Spirit in us is our motivation to live out our salvation. See, like many of you probably, I have one of these things that, that goes along with me on my keys. And if you have one of these, it's called a gym membership. You know what I found with a gym membership? When it just sits in my pocket, it doesn't do a whole lot of good. Right? You got to wake up early. You got to set the alarm. You got to actually get there and you have to put in effort for it. I could have had this for years and never gone and it wouldn't make a lot of difference in my life. See, as walking with God, we have the Holy Spirit, but we are called also to make every effort to be found by him. See, the motivation behind this is that God's goal for our lives, God's goal is that we would be found, our goal that we should be striving towards is perfection. That we should be found without blot or blemish. He says in other passages, 1 Peter talks about how we should be holy just as God is holy. That's the goal for our Christian life. And I think sometimes as Christians, we get too comfortable with where we're at spiritually because we're not focusing on the goal. We get comfortable with where we're at and we're like, well, be perfect? I'm not going to get there. What's the point in trying? Be holy as Jesus is holy? I could never do that. Ah, it's not really worth the effort to even try and get there. But this goal that we should have in front of us, if we're a believer, is not meant to demotivate us, but instead to spur us on to action. See, think of the things in your life, a couple of big things that you were like, man, if I could do this perfectly, that would be fantastic. Certainly walking with God is one of them. If you're married tonight, you're like, man, how amazing would it be if I could be the perfect spouse for my husband or wife? How amazing would it be? That's a great goal to have. Are you ever going to get there? No, not at all. No matter how much your wife or husband tries to tell you that you're getting closer, no, all right, maybe they're saying you're going the other way, right? But the goal is, man, if I could be the perfect husband or wife, that's what I want to work towards, and that's motivation for me. If you're a parent, you want to be the perfect parent for your kids. You want to love them as much as you can, and you want to do everything you can. And the idea of doing this perfectly and you knowing you're going to make mistakes, it doesn't demotivate you, but it motivates you by this great goal. God's goal for us is that we would be perfect in this life, that we would have this pursuit of perfection that consumes the believer every single day. My friends, is that the goal of your life? Or are you just kind of comfortable where you're at? Are you comfortable with the sin in your life? Because, oh, perfection, I could never get there. What's, what's the big deal? Why should I even try? It's so far away. Friends, that's the goal, and we should make every effort to get there. He continues in this final verses, this summary, in, ch in chapter 3 with verses 15 to 17. Peter says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care 
that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. The second key to diligent waiting is that we live with a central focus. Their central focus is none other but on the very word of God. We live as Christians in this world with a central focus on God's word being the main priority that gives input and wisdom and motivation to our lives. He reminds them at the beginning of verse 15 that the patience of God is actually for our salvation. This is referencing back to what we covered a couple weeks ago in verse 9 where it says this in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's again combating this teaching that they had, hey, God's not coming back, and it's because he doesn't care about you, he doesn't love you. That's what, what these false teachers were urging towards the believers. And Peter reassures them, hey, listen, Jesus' delay is not because of his carelessness, but it's because of his love, because he's waiting for more people to place their faith in him. And then he makes this very peculiar statement, which we find in here. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. So it's clear here that, he, that Peter has some reference and idea of, of Paul's writings and his understandings. Now, he doesn't clearly identify letters. We don't know which writings he's referring to here, so it's wise not even to speculate about it. But he says, as he speaks to them, um, to these matters, which we know if you've read any of the rest of the Bible, that Paul regularly talks about Jesus's return for the believers as well. And then I love this at the end of verse 16. Some of these things are hard to understand, which I'm like, amen, thank you. If even Peter couldn't get it all, I'm like, all right, there's still hope for the rest of us, right? I was, I was in with our junior hires this morning as we started studying the book of Romans with our teacher, and I was sitting there reading Romans, the beginning of Romans 1 with a couple sixth grade boys, and one of them stopped and looked at me and went, this is hard. I was like, yes, yes it is. Yes, it is, right? Sometimes it's hard to understand. But what was happening is that people would twist the scripture um, and lead people astray. But notice what happens here at the end of verse 16. He says, as they do the other scriptures. Now this is significant for us as believers because what Peter does here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he equates Paul's writings with that of scripture. Now this word scripture happens in the New Testament 50 times. Every time it refers in the old, back to the Old Testament Bible that we would know today. All right, so scriptures here is clearly talking about the established Old Testament that we had, that was recognized and known to be inspired by God. So he, he looks here and says, Paul's writings which we have, which consist of a large part of the New Testament, are equal with Old Testament scripture. Now this is important for us because this oftentimes in debates about canon on when it was formed. Now if you're like, canons, what is he talking about? Like shooting people? No, canon is what theologians refer to as kind of, it's, it's the measuring rod or what books belong in the Bible, which are actually scriptural and which ones aren't. And this helps us understand that Paul's writings, in fact, are the writings that come from God. And this is important for us because it reminds us in the New Testament of two factors. That first, that it's inspired by God. That the New Testament is inspired by God. This message, these, this book that we have, is not just from man, but from God himself. I was reading recently about B.B. Warfield, who was um, a, a theologian and professor at Princeton. 
And as the kind of this higher criticism was coming in from Europe in the late 1800s and early 1900s, he was one of the great theologians in America who withstood that and said, no, the Bible is not just whatever you want it to be. The Bible is inspired by God. And I was reading and he had this fascinating quote, which I think is so helpful. He said, the Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks speaks. It's inspired by God. Not only that, but because it's inspired by God, it has authority. The Bible is authoritative. Since it is not just human words, but God's words, it has authority over us. If you're a believer, God's word is authoritative and should be authoritative over our lives. It should be the central focus of living. And so, since he establishes this about Paul's writings in Scripture, he says in verse 17, Knowing this beforehand, since you know this, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Take care. Some translations say, be on your guard. Be on your guard against people who would take Scripture and misinterpret it to different ways. Now, we don't know how people were misinterpreting Paul's writings. We're not entirely sure. But, but what he's, he's saying is often the greatest danger that we have against biblical authority and biblical living. It's not people outside the church who have nothing associated with Christians who kind of mock and would make fun of Christianity. Sometimes the greatest danger to the church is the people who look Christian, act Christian, can talk Christian, and they take the Bible and they tweak it. They tweak it towards their own agenda. They tweak it as in, hey, send me this amount of money and you'll be blessed. They tweak it and say, if you live this way, God will definitely bless you. They tweak it to their own agenda. They have just enough knowledge of scripture to be dangerous. He's saying, since you know this is going to happen, be on guard. Be on guard that God's word is honored and held in high regard in each and every one of our lives. See, as Christians, we should walk into this world prepared, knowing that the messages both that we receive from the world as well as even from other people who would claim to be Christians aren't necessarily in line with what God has to tell us. We need to live prepared lives, taking care, being on guard against these falsehoods that could come into our lives. Oftentimes, though, we don't live prepared lives. We live unprepared and we're vulnerable to attacks from the world and just take in the lies that are coming in around us. See, preparation is a thing that I had to learn in a new way when I was in high school. See, growing up when I was young, I lived in what I always joke as is the promised land, Southern California, right? If you've never been there in January, February, or March, go and you'll get what I'm saying, all right? Like, it's beautiful. And so, so I grew up, and one of these things when you grow up in Southern California is that there's this thing that we talk about in the Midwest that they don't talk about out there. It's called weather, right? They don't talk about the weather. They don't, get, they don't think about the weather. It's just going to be what it's going to be. And you're like, oh, come on. That must be a joke. This is a screenshot that I took last night of my hometown's forecast for the next 15 days. Look at that. Every day, it's between 90 and 95. Look at the wind. The wind is 11 or 12 degrees. The most activity they have is Wednesday, there might be a cloud. 
right? It's only mostly sunny, not entirely sunny. We should pray for Californians on Wednesday. They might spot a cl- And look at the precipitation chance for the next 15 days. Zero, right? Now, you and I know just from living in Chicago the last week, the variety that we can have in Chicago weather, right? It can go from 95 degrees to 65 as a high to monsoons and then back all in the same week. Right? No one leaves their house in Chicago without doing what first in the morning? Checking the weather. You've got to be prepared because you're expecting that something bad might happen today. Any day, something might come at me, and I need to be prepared for this monsoon that's going to hit. My friends, that should be our attitude every day that we live our lives. We need to be prepared. Because things could come in, things could come in that would challenge what we believe, that the messages could come in and infiltrate our lives. The reality is if the Bible's not our foundation, then we will falter in the Christian life. If the Bible's not our foundation, we will falter in the Christian life. So with every sermon that you ever hear preached, even at this church, listen carefully. Listen carefully. Don't assume that everything being said always is true. Now, I'm not saying to be critical or cynical or just to always listen for errors, but be on guard. Take care. And in our own lives, now more than ever, do Christians need to be people of God's word. Now more than ever, do we need to know God's word inside and out backwards and forwards to know what it says, why it says it, and the truth that is contained in it. The messages that our world is sending us are contrary so often to this book. But if we don't know what it says, how will we be able to guard ourselves from error? And so as we wait for Jesus' return, one of the primary focuses of our lives to be found diligent as he returns is how we handle this book, how we handle the word of God. Is it feeding us daily? Is it feeding us more than just when we come to church? That's great, come to church. We need church. But you need more than just what you get one or two days a week. You wouldn't eat only when you're at church. Why do you think you'd only need the word of God when you're at church? We need this book every single day. We need God's help in our lives every single day. He concludes the book And it's interesting that in this conclusion, I would say if you're going to summarize or pick a theme verse for the whole book, it's the last one. Verse 18 says this, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The third key to diligent waiting, the third key is consistent growth. The third key, when God returns and we want to be found faithful in his sight, the third key in our lives is that we demonstrate in our lives consistent growth. Now, it's interesting that he ends verse 18 with with this real challenge, also referencing back to kind of what he talked about a lot throughout. He ends it, lastly, with a benediction to Jesus, which just I find it interesting. This is one of only three benedictions made in the Bible specifically to Jesus. The others in 2 Timothy as well as in Revelation. But his challenge here, his his imperative, his command is them, is grow. There's no asterisk. This isn't a question, but grow if you feel like it. This is a command. Grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
grace and knowledge, the living out of our salvation and the growing into the knowledge of our salvation. There's both a relational aspect to our faith and an intellectual component to our faith, and we need to grow in them as well. Too often times, and I think a lot of it depends on our background and personality, we tend to overemphasize one side or the other, right? The people are like, oh, I'm just going to love people. I don't know. I don't even know what the Bible says. I'm just going to love everyone and tell them that Jesus loves them. That's great, but you need to know what this says versus the people are like, I'm never going to talk to anyone. I'm just going to study the Bible. Like, all right, that's not what the Bible says, though. Like, you need to get out. You need to make friends. You need to love other people. It's a both and. But this knowledge, I think, drives the grace in our lives. The, the theologian John Stott says, good conduct arises out of good doctrine. Good conduct in our lives arises out of good doctrine. And so the challenge that Peter leaves us with is this. Grow, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I was growing up, one of the things that my family did all the time were road trips. Road trips. And I'm not talking about like little road trips. I remember years ago, I was up in Deerfield and I heard, overheard some students saying I was in seminary there. I heard, hey, we're going to take a road trip this weekend. And I was like, oh, really? Where are they going? Because I love traveling. So I just kind of peeked my head in like, yeah, we're going to go all the way into the city. I was like, guys, that's like a 40-minute drive on Saturday morning. That's not a road trip, right? That's, that's like what we call driving. That's not a road trip, right? But what I grew up, we, we would often travel, and we would drive straight through from Southern California all the way back to the Midwest, where lots of our family lived in the summer. And so it was often about a 30 to 36-hour drive, and my parents would do it straight. You'd stop for gas. That was it, right? You learned as a kid, you go to the bathroom every time you stop, because if not, that's a painful couple hours coming up. But this was, of course, before the time of cell phones, of, of smart devices, of GPS units. And so I had one of the things that I would do to pass time, because I was kind of a nerdy little kid, I would get out and I would study the road atlas. Do you remember the road atlases when if you wanted to know where to go, you actually had to purchase a book and look at it. You had to purchase a map. And the road atlases were these big books that had maps of every state. And I would love as we were traveling across Colorado, into Nebraska, like following where we were. And as I was following along, one of the keys that I would always find to figure out where we were is every mile out in the country when you would drive by would be a mile marker. And if you're going one way, they count up. And if you're going the other way, they start counting down towards zero until you're at the next state. And then they count over again. See, and it's easy when you're driving and looking at that list to see, okay, we're going the right way. We're going the right way. We're moving down the road the right way. So what are mile markers for the Christian in their spiritual growth? What can we think about and look at and search in our lives to think, am I growing Am I headed the right way? Well, I was helped this week um, by, by a piece that Lifeway actually put out um, talking about spiritual maturity. And I kind of found six, six figures or six kind of categories that they summarized. I put it into my terms, but I stole it from them. So I'll give them credit. This was from Lifeway that I think were very helpful in thinking about areas of our life that we should look back and see growth in in our Christian life. The first is trust. The first is trust in Jesus. Are we learning to trust God more? And when you have a difficult circumstance now compared to five years ago, are you trusting God more today? Do you rely on God day in and day out for your provision? Trust is seen in how we handle our finances. Are we being more generous with our lives and our time and our money now than we were six months, a year, two years ago? 
We should always be growing into our trust in God. The second, which we hit a lot in point two, is scripture. Are we living lives more fully formed and based on God's word rather than the input the world would have on us? Are we cultivating habits in our lives to read the Bible more? Are we loving God's word and finding a greater passion in our hearts for the things of God's word rather than for the things of this world? The next is prayer. Are we increasing in our prayers? Not just the frequency of duration, but when difficulty arrives, are we quicker to find ourselves bringing it to the Lord rather than just trying to problem solve ourselves? Are we experiencing a greater intimacy with God in our lives than we were before? Fourth was relationships. Relationships with other people. If you're a husband or a wife, are you loving your spouse more now than you were a few years ago as a parent, as a coworker, as a friend, as a neighbor? Are you growing into how God has called us to interact with the people around us? The fifth area was in our witness. In our witness, are we sharing our faith with other people more now than we were before? Are we praying more desperately for people's salvation now than we used to? Is people coming to Christ a real passion for ours, or is it just something that would be great if it happens, but it's not really my job? And sixth is ministry. Ministry, because it's not just people, it's not just pastors or missionaries who are in ministry. If you're a Christian, you're called to minister. And so do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Are you serving in the church? Are you ex experiencing the joy of Christ as you're serving the local body of Christ with the gifts that God has given you? And I found it helpful that, that they said for, to challenge to think of growing in these areas, to think not just what do I need to grow, but to motivate ourselves by thinking about what are the benefits if I do grow in this area? See, what is the benefit for me if I grow to trust in Christ more? Well, if you're someone who struggles with anxiety and this restlessness, if you learn to trust in Christ more in your life, then that anxiety will go away as you grow into a greater trust in Jesus Christ. Focusing on prayer will lead to a greater intimacy with the God of the universe. Obviously, if we focus our lives and grow in our witness, we get the joy of seeing other people welcomed into the family of God. The list goes on and on and on. Are there areas on this list that stand out to you when you look at it and go, yeah, that one isn't necessarily going forward. It's not necessarily in reverse, but it's probably just sitting in neutral. Where in your life can you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? See, when you look at your life, the spiritual patterns and habits in your life, where are you headed? So often we talk about spiritual maturity as like this destination, Right? And, and we look at people, and I think it's always good for us to be around people who have a greater sense of spiritual maturity than us. But my friends, while we're here on this earth, every single one of us, whether we're two or whether we're 99, need to be growing in the grace and the knowledge. We never arrive at full spiritual maturity. None of us ever get there this side of heaven. And so the idea that we need to ask, the question we should ask ourselves isn't, am I a spiritually mature person? But the question is this, am I growing into maturity? Am I growing? And sometimes it'll feel like you're on the highway and you're flying and there's no traffic. And man, you're growing and then sometimes it's like, man, it's hard. I'm like creeping along at one mile per hour, but, but I'm, I'm pushing through. I'm growing. Don't worry so much about the pace of growth, but this, 
that God calls us to grow. And as long as we are left here on this earth as a believer to be found by God when he returns, that's what he wants of his people. To make constant effort for our central focus to be on the word of God and that we would experience continual growth into maturity in Christ in the time that we have here. Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, for this letter that Peter writes. God, reminding us of the the sure promise that we have in Jesus Christ, who is and will return. God, may we be found diligent to making every effort to honor you. God, may we be able to look back in the months and the years to come and see that we have indeed grown in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you didn't leave us alone, but you sent your spirit to empower us along this life that we live. God, if there's areas in our lives that we need to focus on to surrender to you, would tonight, would you give us the courage, the motivation to do that? God, understanding you've called us to grow in our walk with you. God, we worship you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.